Book three, section sixteen of On Duties by Cicero, translated by Walter Miller. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards. Sixteen. In the laws pertaining to the sale of real property, it is stipulated in our civil code that when a transfer of any real estate is made, all its defects shall be declared as far as they are known to the vendor. According to the laws of the Twelve Tables, it used to be sufficient that such faults as had been expressly declared should be made good, and that for any flaws which the vendor expressly denied, when questioned, he should be assessed double damages. A like penalty for failure to make such declaration also has now been secured by our jurisconsults. They have decided that any defect in a piece of real estate, if known to the vendor, but not expressly stated, must be made good by him. For example, the augurs were proposing to take observations from the citadel, and they ordered Tiberius, Claudius, Centumalus, who owned a house upon the Celian Hill, to pull down such parts of the building as obstructed the augurs' view by reason of their height. Claudius at once advertised his block for sale, and Publius Calpurnius Lenarius bought it. The same notice was served also upon him, and so, when Calpurnius had pulled down those parts of the building, and discovered that Claudius had advertised it for sale only after the augurs had ordered them to be pulled down, he summoned the former owner before a court of equity to decide what indemnity the owner was under obligation, in good faith, to pay and deliver to him. The verdict was pronounced by Marcus Cato, the father of our Cato, for as other men receive a distinguishing name from their fathers, so he who bestowed upon the world so bright a luminary must have his distinguishing name from his son. He, as I was saying, was presiding judge, and pronounced the verdict that, since the augur's mandate was known to the vendor at the time of making the transfer, and since he had not made it known, he was bound to make good the purchaser's loss. With this verdict he established the principle that it was essential to good faith that any defect known to the vendor must be made known to the purchaser. If his decision was right, our grain-dealer and the vendor of the unsanitary house did not do right to suppress the facts in those cases. But the civil code cannot be made to include all cases where facts are thus suppressed. But those cases, which it does include, are summarily dealt with. Marcus, Marius, Gratidianus, a kinsman of ours, sold back to Gaius, Sergius, Orata, the house which he himself had bought a few years before from that same Orata. It was subject to an encumbrance, but Marius had said nothing about this fact in stating the terms of sale. The case was carried to the courts. Crassus was counsel for Orata. Antonius was retained by Gratidianus. Crassus pleaded the letter of the law that the vendor was bound to make good the defect, for he had not declared it, although he was aware of it. Antonius laid stress upon the equity of the case, pleading that, inasmuch as the defect in question had not been unknown to Sergius, for it was the same house 
that he had sold to marius no declaration of it was needed and in purchasing it back he had not been imposed upon for he knew to what legal liability his purchase was subject what is the purpose of these illustrations to let you see that our forefathers did not countenance sharp practice seventeen now the law disposes of sharp practices in one way philosophers in another the law deals with them as far as it can lay its strong arm upon them philosophers as far as they can be apprehended by reason and conscience now reason demands that nothing be done with unfairness with false pretense or with misrepresentation is it not deception then to set snares even if one does not mean to start the game or to drive it into them why wild creatures often fall into snares undriven and unpursued could one in the same way advertise a house for sale post up a notice to be sold like a snare and have somebody run into it unsuspecting owing to the low ebb of public sentiment such a method of procedure i find is neither by custom accounted morally wrong nor forbidden either by statute or by civil law nevertheless it is forbidden by the moral law for there is a bond of fellowship although i have often made this statement i must still repeat it again and again which has the very widest application uniting all men together and each to each this bond of union is closer between those who belong to the same nation and more intimate still between those who are citizens of the same city-state it is for this reason that our forefathers chose to understand one thing by the universal law and another by the civil law the civil law is not necessarily also the universal law but the universal law ought to be also the civil law but we possess no substantial life-like image of true law and genuine justice a mere outline sketch is all that we enjoy i only wish that we were true even to this for even as it is it is drawn from the excellent models which nature and truth afford for how weighty are the words that i be not deceived and defrauded through you and my confidence in you how precious are these as between honest people there ought to be honest dealing and no deception but who are honest people and what is honest dealing these are serious questions it was quintus civila the pontifex maximus who used to attach the greatest importance to all questions of arbitration to which the formula was appended as good faith requires and he held that the expression good faith had a very extensive application for it was employed in trusteeships and partnerships in trusts and commissions in buying and selling in hiring and letting in a word in all the transactions on which the social relations of daily life depend in these he said it required a judge of great ability to decide the extent of each individual's obligation to the other especially when counterclaims were admissible in most cases away then with sharp practice and trickery which desires of course to pass for wisdom but is far from it and totally unlike it for the function of wisdom is to discriminate between good and evil 
whereas inasmuch as all things morally wrong are evil trickery prefers the evil to the good it is not only in the case of real estate transfers that the civil law based upon a natural feeling for the right punishes trickery and deception but also in the sale of slaves every form of deception on the vendor's part is disallowed for by the edile's ruling the vendor is answerable for any deficiency in the slave he sells for he is supposed to know if his slave is sound or if he is a runaway or a thief the case of those who have just come into the possession of slaves by inheritance is different from this we come to realize that since nature is the source of right it is not in accord with nature that any one should take advantage of his neighbor's ignorance and no greater curse in life can be found than knavery that wears the mask of wisdom thence come those countless cases in which the expedient seems to conflict with the right for how few will be found who can refrain from wrongdoing if assured of the power to keep it an absolute secret and to run no risk of punishment eighteen let us put our principle to the test if you please and see if it holds good in those instances in which perhaps the world in general finds no wrong for in this connection we do not need to discuss cutthroats poisoners forgers of wills thieves and embezzlers of public monies who should be repressed not by lectures and discussions of philosophers but by chains and prison walls but let us study here the conduct of those who have the reputation of being honest men certain individuals brought from greece to rome a forged will purporting to be that of the wealthy lucius minucius basilus the more easily to procure validity for it they made joint heirs with themselves two of the most influential men of the day marcus crassus and quintus hortensius although these men suspected that the will was a forgery still as they were conscious of no personal guilt in the matter they did not spurn the miserable boon procured through the crime of others what shall we say then is this excuse competent to acquit them of guilt i cannot think so although i loved the one while he lived and do not hate the other now that he is dead be that as it may basilus had in fact desired that his nephew marcus satrius should bear his name and inherit his property i refer to the satrius who is the present patron of picinum and the sabine country and oh what a shameful stigma it is upon the times and therefore it was not right that two of the leading citizens of rome should take the estate and satrius succeed to nothing except his uncle's name for if he does wrong who does not ward off and repel injury when he can as i explained in the course of the first book what is to be thought of the man who not only does not try to prevent wrong but actually aids and abets it for my part i do not believe that even genuine legacies are moral if they are sought after by designing flatteries and by attentions hypocritical rather than sincere and yet in such cases there are times when one course is likely to appear expedient and another morally right the appearance is deceptive for our standard is the same for expediency and for moral rectitude and the man who does not accept the truth of this will be capable of any sort of dishonesty 
any sort of crime. For, if he reasons, that is to be sure the right course, but this course brings advantage, he will not hesitate in his mistaken judgment to divorce two conceptions that nature has made one, and that spirit opens the door to all sorts of dishonesty, wrongdoing, and crime. 19. Suppose, then, that a good man had such power that at a snap of his fingers his name could steal into rich men's wills. He would not avail himself of that power. No, not even, though he could be perfectly sure that no one would ever suspect it. Suppose, on the other hand, that one were to offer a Marcus Crassus the power, by the mere snapping of his fingers, to get himself named as heir when he was not really an heir. He would, I warrant you, dance in the forum. But the righteous man, the one whom we feel to be a good man, would never rob anyone of anything to enrich himself. If anybody is astonished at this doctrine, let him confess that he does not know what a good man is. If, on the other hand, any one should desire to unfold the idea of a good man which lies wrapped up in his own mind, he would then at once make it clear to himself that a good man is one who helps all whom he can, and harms nobody, unless provoked by wrong. What shall we say, then? Would he not be doing harm, who, by a kind of magic spell, should succeed in displacing the real heirs to an estate, and pushing himself into their place? Well, some one may say, is he not to do what is expedient, what is advantageous to himself? Nay, verily, he should rather be brought to realize that nothing that is unjust is either advantageous or expedient. If he does not learn this lesson, it will never be possible for him to be a good man. When I was a boy, I used to hear my father tell that Gaius Fimbria, an ex-consul, was judge in a case of Marcus Lutatius Pintia, a Roman knight of irreproachable character. On that occasion, Pintia had laid a wager to be forfeited, if he did not prove in court that he was a good man. Fimbria declared that he would never render a decision in such a case, for fear that he might either rob a reputable man of his good name if he decided against him, or be thought to have pronounced some one a good man when such a character is, as he said, established by the performance of countless duties, and the possession of praiseworthy qualities without number. To this type of good man, then, known not only to a Socrates, but even to a Fimbria, nothing can possibly seem expedient that is not morally right. Such a man, therefore, will never venture to think, to say nothing of doing, anything that he would not dare openly to proclaim. Is it not a shame that philosophers should be in doubt about moral questions, on which even peasants have no doubts at all? For it is with peasants that the proverb already trite with age originated. When they praise a man's honour and honesty, they say, he is a man with whom you can safely play at odd and even in the dark. What is the point of the proverb but this, that what is not proper brings no advantage, even if you can gain your end without any one's being able to convict you of wrong? Do you not see that in the light of this proverb no excuse is available either for the gyges of the story, or for the man who I assumed a moment ago could with a snap of his fingers sweep together everybody's inheritance at once? 
for as the morally wrong cannot by any possibility be made morally right however successfully it may be covered up so what is not morally right cannot be made expedient for nature refuses and resists twenty but stay some one will object when the prize is very great there is excuse for doing wrong gaius marius had been left in obscurity for more than six whole years after his praetorship and had scarcely the remotest hope of gaining the consulship it looked as if he would never even be a candidate for that office he was now a lieutenant under quintus metellus who sent him on a furlough to rome there before the roman people he accused his own general an eminent man and one of our first citizens of purposely protracting the war and declared that if they would make him consul he would within a short time deliver jugurtha alive or dead into the hands of the roman people and so he was elected consul it is true but he was a traitor to his own good faith and to justice for by a false charge he subjected to popular disfavor an exemplary and highly respected citizen and that too although he was his lieutenant and under leave of absence from him even our kinsman gratidianus failed on one occasion to perform what would be a good man's duty in his praetorship the tribunes of the people summoned the college of praetors to council in order to adopt by joint resolution a standard of value for our currency for at that time the value of money was so fluctuating that no one could tell how much he was worth in joint session they drafted an ordinance defining the penalty and the methods of procedure in cases of violation of the ordinance and agreed that they should all appear together upon the rostra in the afternoon to publish it and while all the rest withdrew some in one direction some in another marius gratidianus went straight from the council chamber to the rostra and published individually what had been drawn up by all together and that coup if you care to know brought him vast honour in every street statues of him were erected before these incense and candles burned in a word no one ever enjoyed greater popularity with the masses it is such cases as these that sometimes perplex us in our consideration when the point in which justice is violated does not seem so very significant but the consequences of such slight transgression seem exceedingly important for example it was not so very wrong morally in the eyes of marius to overreach his colleagues and the tribunes in turning to himself alone all the credit with the people but to secure by that means his election to the consulship which was then the goal of his ambition seemed very greatly to his interest but for all cases we have one rule with which i desire you to be perfectly familiar that which seems expedient must not be morally wrong or if it is morally wrong it must not seem expedient what follows can we account either the great marius or our marius gratidianus a good man work out your own ideas and sift your thoughts so as to see what conception and idea of a good man they contain pray tell me does it coincide with the character of your good man to lie for his own profit to slander to overreach to deceive 
nay verily anything but that is there then any object of such value or any advantage so worth the winning that to gain it one should sacrifice the name of a good man and the lustre of his reputation what is there that your so-called expediency can bring to you that will compensate for what it can take away if it steals from you the name of a good man and causes you to lose your sense of honour and justice for what difference does it make whether a man is actually transformed into a beast or whether keeping the outward appearance of a man he has the savage nature of a beast within twenty one again when people disregard everything that is morally right and true if only they may secure power thereby are they not pursuing the same course as he who wished to have as a father-in-law the man by whose effrontery he might gain power for himself he thought it advantageous to secure supreme power while the odium of it fell upon another and he failed to see how unjust to his country this was and how wrong morally but the father-in-law himself used to have continually upon his lips the greek verses from the phoenici which i will reproduce as well as i can awkwardly it may be but still so that the meaning can be understood if wrong may e'er be right for a throne's sake were wrong most right be god in all else feared our tyrant deserved his death for having made an exception of the one thing that was the blackest crime of all why do we gather instances of petty crime legacies criminally obtained and fraudulent buying and selling behold here you have a man who was ambitious to be king of the roman people and master of the whole world and he achieved it the man who maintains that such an ambition is morally right is a madman for he justifies the destruction of law and liberty and thinks their hideous and detestable suppression glorious but if any one agrees that it is not morally right to be king in a state that once was free and that ought to be free now and yet imagines that it is advantageous for him who can reach that position with what remonstrance or rather with what appeal should i try to tear him away from so strange a delusion for o oh, ye immortal gods can the most horrible and hideous of all murders that of fatherland bring advantage to anybody even though he who has committed such a crime receives from his enslaved fellow-citizens the title of father of his country expediency therefore must be measured by the standard of moral rectitude and in such a way too that these two words shall seem in sound only to be different but in real meaning to be one and the same what greater advantage one could have according to the standard of popular opinion than to be a king i do not know when however i begin to bring the question back to the standard of truth then i find nothing more disadvantageous for one who has risen to that height by injustice for can occasions for worry anxiety fear by day and by night and a life all beset with plots and perils be of advantage to anybody thrones have many foes and friends untrue but few devoted friends says axius but of what sort of throne was he speaking why one that was held by right handed down from tantalus and pelops ay but how many more foes think you had that king 
who, with the Roman people's army, brought the Roman people themselves into subjection, and compelled a state that not only had been free, but had been mistress of the world to be his slave. What stains do you think he had upon his conscience? What scars upon his heart? But whose life can be advantageous to himself, if that life is his on the condition that the man who takes it shall be held in undying gratitude and glory? But if these things which seem so very advantageous are not advantageous because they are full of shame and moral wrong, we ought to be quite convinced that nothing can be expedient that is not morally right. 22. And yet this very question has been decided on many occasions before and since. But in the war with Pyrrhus, the decision rendered by Gaius Fabricius in his second consulship and by our senate was particularly striking. Without provocation, King Pyrrhus had declared war upon the Roman people. The struggle was against a generous and powerful prince, and the supremacy of power was the prize. A deserter came over from him to the camp of Fabricius and promised, if Fabricius would assure him of a reward, to return to the camp of Pyrrhus as secretly as he had come, administer poison to the king, and bring about his death. Fabricius saw to it that this fellow was taken back to Pyrrhus, and his action was commended by the senate. And yet, if the mere show of expediency and the popular conception of it are all we want, this one deserter would have put an end to that wasting war and to a formidable foe of our supremacy, but it would have been a lasting shame and disgrace to us to have overcome, not by valour, but by crime, the man with whom we had a contest for glory. Which course, then, was more expedient for Fabricius, who was to our city what Aristides was to Athens, or for our senate, who never divorced expediency from honour, to contend against the enemy with the sword or with poison? If supremacy is to be sought for the sake of glory, crime should be excluded, for there can be no glory in crime. But if it is power for its own sake that is sought, whatever the price, it cannot be expedient if it is linked with shame. That well-known measure, therefore, introduced by Pilipus, the son of Quintus, was not expedient. With the authority of the Senate, Lucius Sulla had exempted from taxation certain states upon receipt of a lump sum of money from them. Pilipus proposed that they should again be reduced to the condition of tributary states, without repayment on our part of the money that they had paid for their exemption. And the Senate accepted his proposal. Shame upon our government! The pirate's sense of honour is higher than the Senate's. But, someone will say, the revenues were increased, and therefore it was expedient. How long will people venture to say that a thing that is not morally right can be expedient? Furthermore, can hatred and shame be expedient for any government? For government ought to be founded upon fair fame and the loyalty of allies. On this point I often disagreed even with my friend Cato. It seemed to me that he was too rigorous in his watchful care over the claims of the treasury and the revenues. He refused everything that the farmers of the revenue asked for, and much that the allies desired, 
whereas, as I insisted, it was our duty to be generous to the allies, and to treat the publicans, as we were accustomed, individually, to treat our tenants, and, all the more, because harmony between the orders was essential to the welfare of the Republic. Curio, too, was wrong, when he pleaded that the demands of the people beyond the paw were just, but never failed to add, let expediency prevail. He ought rather to have proved that the claims were not just, because they were not expedient for the Republic, than to have admitted that they were just, when, as he maintained, they were not expedient. 23. The sixth book of Hecaton's Moral Duties is full of questions like the following. Is it consistent with a good man's duty to let his slaves go hungry when provisions are at famine prices? Hecaton gives the arguments on both sides of the question, but still in the end it is by the standard of expediency, as he conceives it, rather than by one of human feeling, that he decides the question of duty. Then he raises this question. Supposing a man had to throw part of his cargo overboard in a storm, should he prefer to sacrifice a high-priced horse, or a cheap and worthless slave? In this case, regard for his property interest inclines him one way, human feeling the other. Suppose that a foolish man has seized hold of a plank from a sinking ship. Shall a wise man wrest it away from him if he can? No, says Hecaton, for that would be unjust. But how about the owner of the ship? Shall he take the plank away because it belongs to him? Not at all no more than he would be willing, when far out at sea, to throw a passenger overboard on the ground that the ship was his. For, until they reach the place for which the ship is chartered, she belongs to the passengers, not to the owner. Again, suppose there were two to be saved from the sinking ship, both of them wise men, and only one small plank. Should both seize it to save themselves, or should one give place to the other? Why, of course, one should give place to the other, but that other must be the one whose life is more valuable, either for his own sake, or for that of his country. But what if these considerations are of equal weight in both? Then there will be no contest, but one will give place to the other, as if the point were decided by lot, or at a game of odd and even. Again, suppose a father were robbing temples, or making underground passages to the treasury, should a son inform the officers of it? Nay, that were a crime. Rather should he defend his father in case he were indicted. Well, then, are not the claims of country paramount to all other duties? Aye, verily, but it is to our country's interest to have citizens who are loyal to their parents. But once more, if the father attempts to make himself king, or to betray his country, shall the son hold his peace? Nay, verily, he will plead with his father not to do so. If that accomplishes nothing, he will take him to task, he will even threaten, and in the end, if things point to the destruction of the state, he will sacrifice his father to the safety of his country. Again, he raises the question, if a wise man should inadvertently accept counterfeit money for good, will he offer it as genuine in payment of a debt after he discovers his mistake? Diogenes says, yes, Antipater, no, and I agree with him. If a man knowingly offers for sale wine that is spoiling, 
ought he to tell his customers? Diogenes thinks that it is not required. Antipater holds that an honest man would do so. These are like so many points of the law disputed among the Stoics. In selling a slave, should his faults be declared? Not those only which the seller is bound by the civil law to declare, or have the slave returned to him, but also the fact that he is untruthful, or disposed to gamble, or steal, or get drunk. The one thinks such facts should be declared, the other does not. If a man thinks that he is selling brass when he is actually selling gold, should an upright man inform him that his stuff is gold, or go on buying for one shilling what is worth a thousand? It is clear enough by this time what my views are on these questions, and what are the grounds of dispute between the above-named philosophers? End of section 23